Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in out of the dark woods and into the warm cabin. We've got a few stories for you this evening, so rustle up a bit of food. Find a cozy place to settle in. We have a couple of stories for you this evening. Our first story will be from David Williamson. David Williamson has been writing horror stories for over 20 years and was first published in the 28th Pan Book of Horror Stories with his story, The Sandman. He then appeared in the last of the Pan Collection, the 30th Pan Book of Horror, which published three of his tales. Since then, he has had stories in the Black Book of Horror, numbers 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 from Mortbury Press, alt-zombies from Hersham Horror, and will soon be appearing in two forthcoming horror anthologies from Crudius Libri Press, due out November 30th. The Chameleon Man first appeared in Black Book Number 5, and Boys Will Be Boys appeared in Black Book Number 8. He lives near Brighton in the UK with his daughter and a three-legged lurcher named Othello. We also heard from David Williamson fairly recently with his handful of dust in episode number 159. He was one of the few contributors to the show that I pronounced the name correctly. And now, David Williamson's Chameleon Man. The ugly buboes nestling in his armpits were swollen to the size of a hen's egg. They were bloated and angry-looking and burst suddenly with an audible popping sound, sending a trickle of red-gray viscous pus streaming down the man's ribcage. The rest of his skin was covered in small bleeding spots that quickly turned almost black, giving the disease its terrible name, the Black Death, otherwise known as bubonic plague. The audience ooed and awed and erupted into spontaneous applause as Charlie Benton completed his remarkable display. Within seconds, the buboes, horrible black spots and open running sores had completely vanished, and his body was once more clear of blemishes and healthy-looking. 
Professor James Watson stepped forward on the small stage and congratulated Charlie, slapping him heartily on the back with undisguised affection and respect. "'Magnificent, Charlie, absolutely magnificent. You truly are a wonder to behold,' he shouted above the general uproar in the exhibition chamber." All around the packed circular amphitheater, more usually employed for demonstrations of surgical procedures, the assembled medical students, doctors, surgeons, and dignitaries cheered and applauded as Charlie Benton smiled wanly. He'd given similar displays of his talents at other venues across Europe and America, but never before to such a large and celebrated audience as this one. The professor rapped his gavel on the oak podium in an attempt to bring the hall to order. After several attempts, the rapturous applause died to a trickle and finally to a single overexcited medical student who Watson silenced with a withering stare. And now Mr. Benton will demonstrate the next part of his performance. Leprosy, yelled the professor, not unlike a fairground barker at a dubious sideshow. Charlie Benton really was an incredible man. Ever since his childhood, when he had discovered that he could mimic illnesses such as chickenpox, measles, and the like, simply by reading about the symptoms and then concentrating hard with their description in mind. It had started as a prank, a way of getting out of the classroom, but he had soon become a legend amongst his peers and word quickly spread. In earlier days, he would surely have been burnt as a witch, but even in these enlightened times, he was shunned and feared by many and hated by a few. Charlie was seventeen when word of the remarkable young man reached the ears of Professor Watson, the world-renowned expert in tropical diseases, who was based at the London Institute. Once the professor had discovered him, Charlie rapidly became the toast of medical science, written about in every medical journal and newspaper across the globe adored and feared now in equal proportions, condemned by the church as a demon, at the same time praised by medical men for his amazing insight into illness and diseases. But today was something very special for Charlie Benton. The greatest medical brains from around the entire globe, together with all the top research scientists, plus a handful of brilliant medical students, were all gathered under one roof for an extra special display of his unique talent. He would produce, before their very eyes, 37 different diseases and severe disfigurements in one three-hour session, and then take questions at the end of the exhibition. Imagine being able to see the Black Death from start to finish, right there in front of you and with no risk of contagion, and all over and done with in less than four minutes. Incredible. Or witnessing deadly epidemic cholera or typhoid. The list of normally fatal diseases went on and on, all in plain view from start to finish, each one bringing a further gasp of amazement from the assembled medical men. It was this incredible ability to mimic these normally murderous afflictions that had given Charlie his stage name, the Chameleon Man, for it was the strange chameleon-like properties within his body which created these fantastic phenomena with absolutely no actual bacterial infections present. Even though the display was 100% safe, this hadn't stopped the occasional medical student from fleeing for his very life as Charlie began his incredible transformations. 
Tonight was the culmination of six years of being prodded and poked, jabbed and examined, and a thousand other medical tortures devised to get to the bottom of Charlie's unique talent. Tonight was the big one. He had been offered a great deal of money for this evening's display, and he intended to give full value, as the cash would keep him in grand style well into his old age. He was a self-made man, celebrated around the world, the likes of whom had never been seen before, and he had done it all himself. Now his father would laugh on the other side of his drunken face if he were still alive. Useless talent, indeed. As Charlie completed his thirty-sixth disease, the applause in the auditorium was deafening. He had decided before the evening had started that he would have to end on a big one something very special that he had been practicing in the peace and quiet of Professor Watson's country house, which had never been witnessed by a living soul. The professor stepped forward on the dais and tried to still the uproar in the hall. "'Please, gentlemen, please,' he implored. After several more minutes, silence finally fell upon the crowd. "'Mr. Benton, Charlie,' will now perform something that nobody, not even myself, has ever been privileged to see before this day. It is something so, so remarkable, so impossible, that you will without doubt disbelieve your own eyes. The professor took a step back as Charlie, now wearing a long cape about his shoulders, not so much for theatrical effect as to combat the chill in the old amphitheater, took his place at the lectern. The room was so still, you truly could have heard the proverbial pin drop as Charlie prepared to speak. Gentlemen, the things that you have witnessed here this evening have been, I hope you will agree, incredible. A murmur of agreement swept through the audience together with several hearty hear-hears. But, continued the chameleon man, all that is nothing, nothing to what I will now provide for your entertainment. Gasps could be heard from the stunned audience, and Charlie had to wave them silent once more before he could continue. All the diseases you have seen so far are but mere, shall we say, surface alterations to my outer fleshy layer. But I have been working on something that I hope will be the greatest transformation ever performed in any public place. Somewhere from the left of the small stage there was a theatrical drum roll as Charlie threw off his cape. All the lights in the auditorium were dimmed, save for the bright stage light. And now, for the first time ever anywhere in the world, I give you Curvature of the Spine, otherwise known as Hunchback. The applause was totally deafening. No one, not even the professor, had expected anything like this. It was the greatest possible finale to a wonderful evening of medical surprises and chronic illnesses. The man was a true showman and a genius of the highest order. Slowly the room fell into hushed and expectant silence. Every eye was transfixed on Charlie Benton as he prepared himself for his latest wonderful transformation. The flesh on his back started to stretch and ripple in an alarming manner. The spinal column under the skin began buckling and bending outwards, completely distorting his stance and the entire shape of his ribcage and upper body. Within the space of two minutes, and with what was clearly an incredibly strenuous effort, Charlie stood before the assembled medical brains of the entire world, a hunchback. The other transformations had been miraculous, but this was on a whole new level. Was there nothing in terms of bodily disfigurement this man could not achieve? He was truly the chameleon man. 
The applause and cheering was so loud that the professor feared that the glass roof high above them would shatter with the noise. He placed both hands over his ears, not daring to try and stop the crowd's appreciation of what they had just witnessed. It was nothing short of a miracle, and everyone there knew it. It took Charlie somewhat longer to revert back to normal than usual. The strain was clearly evident on his face as the professor guided the younger man towards a chair at the side of the stage. Sweat ran down Charlie's face in tiny rivers, and he trembled uncontrollably as he fought to regain his composure. Watson placed an arm around Charlie's shoulder, his face a mask of concern. "'Are you all right, dear boy? You look so pale,' he asked. The young man nodded weakly. After what seemed like hours, but in truth no more than a few minutes, the applause still echoing around the hall, Charlie smiled weakly at his mentor and hoisted himself from the chair. His public were calling, and he could not disappoint them. He walked unsteadily over to the lectern, held on tight, and then took a deep bow. Encore! 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 The word coming from almost every voice in the auditorium. Charlie held up a trembling hand to try and quell the uproar, and slowly, row by row, they fell silent. The great man was about to speak, and they didn't want to miss a single word of what he had to say. Thank you. Thank you so much, he began shakily. His mentor stepped forward with a glass of water, and Charlie took a sip before continuing. I hope that you have enjoyed my little exhibition here this evening. As you will no doubt be aware, this was my last public appearance. I am now going to study medicine myself in Vienna. I have had enough of being poked and prodded, and feel it is now my turn to be the prodder. Laughter briefly swept through the hall. There were tears brimming in Charlie's eyes, tears of sadness but also of relief. These displays were starting to take their toll on the young man, and it was time to stop them before they killed him. The professor stepped forward and draped Charlie's discarded cape around the younger man's shoulders and smiled warmly at the person he had come to think of as his son. Charlie returned the smile and turned to face the audience once more. I must thank you, everyone, all of you who have supported me over the years, but especially my friend and savior, Professor Watson without whom I would surely have ended up as a freak in a carnival sideshow. The young man, choked by emotion and with tears streaming down his cheeks, turned and was led away by his friend and mentor to the rapturous cheers of the audience. Somehow, through all the bedlam, one voice seemed to stand out above all others, and Charlie stopped to see who was shouting at him. He could see that it was a young man, a medical student, no doubt, but he couldn't hear what was being said. Sensing that something was going on, the audience slowly fell silent as Charlie faced the young man seated below the stage. "'I'm sorry, what did you say?' asked the star of the show. The student grinned widely. It looked for all the world as though he had been put up to this, and Charlie had perhaps foolishly taken the bait. "'I said, "'Do you feel that there is no illness or state of health that you cannot recreate?' The student sat waiting. He had set the trap, and it was now up to Charlie to avoid it or fall in feet first. The chameleon man was both puzzled and annoyed by this upstart's pointless question. "'Excuse me, have you just arrived, or have you been asleep for the last three hours?' he asked, barely able to disguise the contempt in his voice. 
Did you not witness 36 diseases plus a severe curvature of the spine displayed here on this very stage? Charlie was clearly furious, and this was made all the worse by the cool way the medical student sat staring and smiling in the seat below him. A nervous titter ran around the auditorium as Charlie attempted to put the would-be doctor in his place. So, continued the student, there is no medical or physical state that you cannot recreate. That is what you maintain, is it? sneered the younger man. Charlie looked at the professor, who shrugged his shoulders helplessly. The showman slammed his fist down hard on the lectern, knocking over the glass half full of water, which in turn shattered on the stage floor. "'Of course there isn't, you idiot,' he bellowed at the student. Another nervous laugh traveled around the hall. The audience was starting to sense that there was something in the air, and silence fell. The cocky young student rose from his chair and stood right next to the stage where he could clearly be seen and heard by all. "'Right then, Mr. Benton,' the boy paused for effect. "'Have you ever tried to mimic the medical state of death?' he yelled loud enough for the whole hall to hear. Charlie looked stunned. The professor looked stunned. In fact, everyone in the whole auditorium except the student looked stunned by the idea, and the place was alive with speculation and chatter. Charlie looked to his mentor for support and advice, and the professor was shaking his head violently. "'No, Charlie, it cannot be done, not even by you,' the older man tugged at his ward, trying to usher him away from the edge of the stage. But suddenly another voice called out, "'Do it!' Then another and another, until the whole audience were demanding to know the answer to the young student's question. For one of the very few times in Charlie's life he felt scared. He was scared that he had been challenged to attempt something that couldn't be done. He was scared that he'd look foolish in front of all those respected people, and he was scared that if he didn't at least try to do it, he would lose every scrap of esteem and appreciation that he'd worked so long and hard for over the years. He struggled free from the professor's grip and strode back to the edge of the stage. I repeat for the benefit of the deaf and the dense among you, there is no medical state that I cannot mimic, given the time and practice, not even death. He spat the last word and glared at the student as if daring him to continue. The younger man merely sat down and crossed his arms, an unpleasant grin spreading across his thin face. Then show us, Mr. Benton, show us, he demanded. "'Please, Charlie, this is madness,' begged the professor. "'You know it can't be done. You'll kill yourself.' Charlie brushed off his appeals and ripped off the cloak, tossing it into the audience. "'Don't you see? It will be the ultimate display in my career. The man who could feign death, the greatest trick since Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. Just imagine!' Watson realized it was too late, all because of some childish imbecile in the audience. The most amazing man who had ever lived was about to risk his very life, and there was nothing he could do to stop it happening. He sat down, a beaten man, and waited for the inevitable, determined to take no part in what was about to occur. The next few minutes were spent with Charlie Benton directing the stewards in erecting a high table on the stage so that the whole audience could witness the impossible. At last everything was ready and the chameleon man signaled for the room to be silent. All chatter stopped as he clambered onto the improvised deathbed. He glared at the young student in the front row and said, And now, for the benefit of those amongst you who disbelieve me, I will mimic the medical state of death. 
Once more the theatrical-sounding drum roll rang out as Charlie Benton lay back on the bed, arms folded across his chest like an Egyptian mummy. Utter silence pervaded the auditorium. At first his breathing increased and the blood hammered through his veins and arteries as he struggled to imagine what death must feel like. Every other illness he had mimicked over the years were well documented, but aside from knowing what a dead person looked like, there was, of course, no written description, no second-hand evidence for him to know what it would feel like. He began to wish that he had kept his mouth shut and curbed his temper. That blasted student had this trap in mind all evening, and he had blundered into it with his eyes wide open. Fool! There were the odd murmurs in the hall as he tried to concentrate, first one, then another, until there was a general buzz throughout the auditorium. "'Concentrate, Charlie. Concentrate. You can do it. You can do it,' he told himself over and over again. Gradually, very gradually, his heart rate began to slow and his breathing even out. It felt as though he was drifting into a heavy sleep. The noises in the hall faded into the background until he could no longer hear them and the bright lights were extinguished from his sight. Just the slow and steady thud of his heart and the barely noticeable movement of his lungs. He was drifting, drifting on a sea with no horizons. There was no movement. He was just floating, it seemed. Then, nothing. The buzz of chatter grew into a roar as the professor moved quickly to Charlie's side. He felt for a pulse. There was none. He desperately listened for a heartbeat. Nothing. He placed a small mirror over Charlie's mouth to capture signs of breath escaping. There were none. Finally, he took a large steel pin from behind his jacket lapel and jabbed it hard into the muscle of Charlie's right thigh. Not a flicker of movement. For all intents and purposes, Charlie Benton was dead. Well and truly dead. The professor faced the audience and shook his head sadly. Even the mouthy student had the good grace to go ashen and hang his head in shame. There would be more tests, naturally. After all, the room was filled to the rafters with the best medical brains in the world. If there was any chance of finding life in the body of the chameleon man, these were surely the men to do so. Charlie had simply pressed his luck too far this time. After an hour had passed, not a single person had left the hall. Some were weeping openly. The place was unnaturally quiet otherwise. When three hours had elapsed, and after every possible procedure had been employed to resuscitate Charlie Benton, he was declared dead, and, given the nature of the audience, talk naturally turned to carrying out an autopsy on the body of the most amazing man who had ever lived. Even though Watson was appalled at the notion, he was, after all, a medical man, and offered only a token argument against the idea. Within the fourth hour, all was prepared for the investigation into the incredible body of the chameleon man, and distinguished medical men jostled one another for the best view of proceedings like children at a playground brawl. Charlie Benton lay naked and spread-eagled on the autopsy table, like a giant moth on a mount. Professor Watson had been elected as the person to carry out the examination of the strangest case in medical history, and, as he stepped forward, scalpel at the ready, his hands were trembling slightly with anticipation. After hovering briefly above Charlie's abdomen, he vigorously jabbed with the scalpel, drawing it swiftly and evenly upwards and then across, 
so that all the vital organs were exposed at a stroke. Nothing unusual so far, he declared to the expectant audience. The examination continued. Normal procedure was to remove all organs so that they could be examined and weighed, checked for growths, damage, etc. The professor always started with the heart in these cases, and, after all, this was just another autopsy, so that was where he'd begin today. At the very instant he deftly severed the main aorta, the dead man's eyes flickered open. It had taken much longer to get back than he had thought it would, but he had done it. He had lifted the curtain of death and looked beyond. He had seen what lay ahead, and he had returned with that knowledge, to share with all mankind. The wonders he had witnessed, the incredible things he could relate to these doctors. I told you I could do it, he bellowed at the stunned circle of faces above him. But something seemed to be wrong, very wrong. Why did they all look at him in that way? What had happened while he had been away? Professor Watson had already severed all major arteries to Charlie's heart before he realized that the man had returned from the dead. He had even failed to notice that the once-dead organ had started to beat again at the very moment he had begun the first incision, and he now tried desperately to replace the throbbing heart back into the chest cavity, struggling with the haste of the hopeless, already knowing that it was far too late to save his former friend. Charlie Benton stared with pleading eyes into the face of his mentor. Help me, Professor. Help me. He let out a soundless scream, and his whole body shook and trembled. Charlie Benton returned to the other side, this time on a one-way ticket. That was David Williamson's Chameleon Man, as read to us by Martin Munt. I know some of you are like me and listen to Tales to Terrify Episode 1 when there wasn't even an Episode 2 yet. And those fine folks heard Martin Munt's voice for his story, Chair. Thank you again for the read, Mr. Munt. Link to his page will be in the show notes. Up next will be B.E. Scully's Age Will Be Responsible. B.E. Scully writes tales dark and strange, drinks red wine and murky beer, cooks, reads, studies, and believes in the golden key. Scully lives in a haunted red house that lacks a foundation in the misty woods of Oregon with a variety of human and animal companions. Scully's short story, Collections, The Knife and The Wound It Deals, is currently available on Amazon and other fine venues along with the critically acclaimed gothic thriller, Verland, The Transformation. And now, B.E. Scully's age will be responsible. When the eight-inch water bug ran across the toe of the real estate lady's high-heeled shoe, Jody thought for sure she was going to turn around and run straight up the stairs without so much as a backwards glance. When that didn't happen, he pointed to the row of glue traps lining the basement walls. See all them with their legs in the air? That one will get caught just the same. Give it time, he told her. The real estate lady gave him a look that said she considered him as nasty as the water bottle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hugs. But Jody just smiled. Even with the double wages the development company was paying, he knew that no one was exactly lining up to take this job. So, how long do you think it's going to take to clear these out? The company wants the building resold in... Let's see. She stabbed a few times at the little pad she was always staring at, and then finished without looking up. Six months, max. Jody nudged the edge of a giant steamer trunk with the tip of his work boot. Like all the others, it was caked with grime and dust, the peeling shipping stickers on the side, a faded reminder of the lost pleasures of the Cunard White Star and Hotel Continental Paris. Bet this one hasn't been moved in forty years or more, Jody said. Can you imagine what would come running out from under there? I'd rather not, the real estate lady said. The air in the basement was dank and unsanitary. Jody knew she was itching to get out of there, which made it even more fun to keep her here a little bit longer. And you say I can keep anything I turn up down here? He asked. Like I've told you already, we sent letters to everyone we could find, but most of this junk belongs to people who haven't been alive for decades, so whatever hasn't been claimed by now has to go. And the sooner the better, because it's important. But whatever was important was cut short by an ear-piercing scream. The real estate lady's shoe had introduced itself to another of the residents. This time, it was a desiccated rat carcass. That was enough to send her running for the stairs. And Jody watched her slender legs disappear up the rickety steps. Along with the water bugs and sprouting mold spores... Jody fingered a torn green tag attached to an imitation leather suitcase with bulging seams, longing to spill its secrets. The color of the tags showed the last time they were handled. Red meant the 90s, green the 80s, orange the 70s, and so on. The graying white tags went all the way back to the 50s, or even in some cases, the 40s. <sighs> Those must have been the days, Jody muttered to the gloom. Porters in starch shirts and bow ties fetching trunks for movie stars and big shots. Yep, those were the Hollywood golden days, all right. Been a steady downhill trip ever since. Golden days or not, 
the trunks and suitcases stored down here had been forgotten about for a reason. Most of them were empty, and the rest contained nothing but old, useless junk. Jody had been through about half of them already, and so far, all he'd turned up was a tangled mass of Marine Corps ammo belts in a trunk with the name T.R. Mukad stenciled on the side, a pile of canceled checks from the year 1952 in a tattered paisley carpet bag, and an eggshell blue hard side with a broken lock and a collection of village people records inside. If any hidden treasures were buried down here, Jody hadn't found them yet. He had hold of the rusted chain that worked the room's only light bulb when the small brown trunk caught his eye. It was just as grimy as the rest of them, but something about it seemed different, important somehow, as if it had been down here all of these years, just waiting to be found. The tag was gray-white and half-disintegrated. Jody tried the latch, but it was locked. He took out his pocket knife and pried at it for a while, but it wouldn't budge. Flimsy little lock's no bigger than a matchbook, yet look how it holds. They don't make them like that anymore, I tell you that. He called up the stairs to see if the real estate lady was still around, but no one answered back. Was he only allowed to take stuff from the bags, or could he take the whole thing? What the hell? They're all going to be dumped anyway. The trunk was surprisingly light in his hand. So much for hidden bars of gold or bottles of rare whiskey. He switched off the bulb and climbed the warped stairs that protested beneath his bulk. Only when the light from the first floor sent a shaft through the open stairway door did he see the handwritten sign. He'd been down in the basement dozens of times, but somehow he'd never noticed it before. At one time it had read, The management will not be responsible for articles stored in the basement. But dust, grime, and disintegration had obscured some of the letters. Ha <laughs> ha! Would you look at that? Jody said. He had a lifelong loner's habit of talking to himself out loud and sometimes even answering. Way it reads now looks like age will be responsible for articles stored in basement. Age will be responsible. Now that's the truth if I ever heard it. Jody had meant to break the lock off and see what was inside right away, but the cats kept crying for their dinner and more notices from the real estate company were in the mail. So by the time he settled in front of the TV with his own warmed-up plastic tray, he'd forgotten all about the little suitcase. He had just drifted off to an old comedy movie when he heard the music. Calliope music. Like the kind they played at a circus. But no, that wasn't quite it. The same refrain seemed to repeat itself over and over again, and he felt the hair stand up on the back of his neck. He seemed to recall the same kind of music from a summer night a long time ago. But the memory skittered away from him like a spider, escaping through a crack in the wall. Where was that damn music coming from, anyway? He stood up and went to the door. Lousy musicians need to cut that out this late at night. Only Jody knew there weren't any musicians left in the building. In fact, there wasn't anybody left in the building except for him. He wasn't even sure if the company taking over from the last one was going to renovate it or just raise the whole thing to the ground. If that happened, he'd be out of luck. And how? With rent control, social security, and the little extra he got doing odd jobs around the place, 
he'd had enough left over at the end of the month to get by. But not by much. And ever since Hollywood had decided to reinvent itself with fancy shopping centers and luxury apartment buildings, rent had gone through the roof all over town. Now he'd be lucky if he could even afford some downtown hole in the wall. He opened the door and gazed both ways down the hallway. The dirty orange carpet with the zigzag pattern gave him vertigo, just like it had been doing for the past twenty years. But the hallway was empty, and the music seemed to have stopped. Too many damn crazy musicians in Hollywood, that's the trouble. The last of his mashed potatoes and steak pie had gone cold, and he put the plastic tray on the floor for the cats to finish off. Maybe that trunk would have something in it that would solve his problems, even if it wasn't bars of gold. Maybe stacks of lost gangster money, or some old movie star secrets that would fetch something from a collector. He went and got a pair of pliers, and by the time he had the lock pried off, he was already thinking about that new high-rise on the corner of Vine, the one with the cabana bar on the roof. Ah, damn it to hell, anyway. All that was inside was a tissue-thin wedding dress, carefully folded inside yellowing sheets of newspaper. He took the dress out of the paper, studied its intricate patterns of silk and lace, and then carefully laid it back in the trunk. Damn thing looks like it'd turned to dust if you so much as looked at it too long. He smoothed the newspaper out on the floor and cheered up a little when he saw the date. Wednesday, May 9th, 1945. It might be worth something to a World War II collector or history buff. The paper was called The Star. It came from the island of Guernsey, and only one headline blared across the top. Relieved. British troops arrive in Guernsey. Jody remembered a documentary he'd seen on TV about the Channel Islands. Only part of Britain to be occupied by German forces, he reminded himself. Jody knew a lot about military history, even though he himself had never served on account of his weak feet. He scanned the rest of the paper. It mostly had articles about how food and tobacco provisions were on the way, and pictures of crowds cheering in the streets with the British flag being raised and all that happy patriotic horseshit. One headline in particular caught his eye. It inspired a chuckle, as greasy and unsavory as the last of his dinner, congealing in its plastic tray. Guernsey men returned to the island with the liberators. And I wonder what the Guernsey women were getting up to while they were gone, he snorted. He fingered the wedding gown, the lace and gauze so fragile it seemed ready to crumble in his hands. Looks like this young bride's man either didn't return home with the liberators, or didn't want her anymore once he did. He folded up the brittle newspaper and tossed it back into the trunk on top of the dress. Tomorrow, he'd take the whole thing to a collector he knew on Fairfax and accept whatever offer he could get. The calliope music was getting louder and louder, faster and faster, and the big grinning faces spun round and round until Jody thought his head would spin right off with them. Then, all of a sudden, the music stopped. The woman came out of nowhere, silent and dressed in a white gown, a wedding gown. She was holding a bouquet of red flowers just below her waistline. A dark curtain of hair prevented Jody from seeing her face, 
but he thought she was smiling, smiling at him. He groaned as a long, dormant desire, hell, long dead as far as he'd figured, flared back to life. The woman reached toward him. Jody reached back. But as their hands connected, he saw that where the red bouquet of flowers had been was now an ugly red stain between her legs, seeping outward across the white of the dress like an angry crimson sunrise. The calliope music started again, and Jody tried to scream, but all of a sudden his throat closed up as if cold, slender hands were squeezing it tight. Jody bolted up in bed as his strangled cry sent the cats flying in all directions. Damn it anyway. I've got to lay off of that whiskey before bed. He'd overslept and had to work harder than he liked in order to finish his chores. He fixed the broken gate at the back and cleaned out the front garden boxes, even though nothing had grown in them for a decade at least. But he didn't go back down to the basement. All day the terrible dream about the woman in white stayed with him like a lingering infection. That maddening calliope music hummed in his ears like a gnat that keeps coming back, no matter how many times you swat it away. The crimson stain between the woman's legs contaminated his every thought. By the time Jody got back to his apartment and fed the cats and himself, he was too exhausted to even think about going all the way to Fairfax. The trunk was still on the hall table where he'd left it. He went over and squinted at the fading gray tag. He could just make out the owner's name if he filled in some letters here or there. Eileen Livingston, or Livingstone, or some damn thing like that. Ladylike name, all right, but it sure as hell isn't ladylike to scare a harmless old man in the middle of the night. He poured his nightly whiskey and had a good laugh at himself before going to bed. Must finally be getting soft in the head, he told the cats as he drifted off to sleep. In his dream that night, Jody was dressed in a crisp uniform with tall black boots. He felt more confident and powerful than he ever had in his real life. The woman, with the curtain of dark hair, was in a crowded dance hall this time, but she wasn't wearing white. Instead, she was in a fancy striped number with shiny black shoes. It looked like she'd spent a lot of time getting ready. He knew that the local girls weren't supposed to dance with the Germans, but girls need to have some fun now and then. They need to dance and laugh and feel special, even during wartime, maybe especially during wartime. Jody caught the dark-haired woman's eye, and they danced round and round to the music the same calliope tune again. She was smiling, wide and radiant. And then somehow, they were out by the sea. The gritty, damp sand was rough beneath their skin. The cold, salty water misted their faces and hair. The woman was beside him on the sand, but she wasn't smiling any longer. She was telling him to stop, please stop. But the desire rose up in him, an animal thing, and he couldn't stop now, wouldn't stop. The crashing waves must have drowned everything else out, because he never heard the old man approaching. By the time he registered the startled cry and outraged expression, it was too late. 
Of course, they'd both been recognized. In a town like Guernsey, everyone knew everybody else, and everything about everybody else. Tomorrow, the entire island would know about the pretty, dark-haired girl and the German officer. He hadn't even stepped in the door of headquarters the next morning before his commanding officer summoned him. There has been some disturbing talk among the people about a local girl caught in a, shall we say, compromising position with one of our officers last night. The sweat crept across his forehead like a sticky confession, but he remained silent as long as he could. You know, of course, how important it is to maintain good relations with the natives of this island, Oberlieutenant. How crucial it is to show the British what civilized occupiers we will be once we take the rest of their country, yes? Yes, Hofstenfuhrer. And so, of course, any crime against the native population will be punished by the severest measures of our laws. That is as it should be, don't you agree? Yes, Hofstenfuhrer. His commander stood up and came within inches of his face. Jody, or whoever the hell he was in the dream, could smell the coffee he'd had for breakfast still on his breath. And do you know what the punishment is for, say, raping a civilian woman, Oberlieutenant? Yes, sir. Military execution, sir. That is correct. Death by firing squad. This sends quite a clear message to our British hosts that such savagery will not be tolerated. The commander sat back down, and Jody had to force his legs to keep holding him upright. And do you think we will be getting any reports of such misbehavior, Oberlieutenant? No, sir. Then you are dismissed, Oberlieutenant, and for both of our sakes. I hope you are correct. He had never asked the dark-haired woman to lie for him. In fact, he'd never even spoken to her again. At first, he'd waited every day for the arrest order to come, and had almost reconciled himself to his fate. But then he'd seen the dark-haired woman in the market, the other women turned her away from their stalls. The men spit at her and called out, Jerry Bag! And, German whore! When she walked by. He knew then he was safe. He knew that for some reason he would never begin to understand. The woman had destroyed her own reputation for the sake of preserving his life. Less than a month later, he received his orders for the Russian front. He never went back to the British Isles, and the dark-haired woman was eventually forgotten. But little towns like Guernsey have very long memories. Long after the dark-haired woman's fiancé returned home from war and broke off the engagement, long after she boarded the ship that would take her to the United States in a new life, Eileen Livingstone would be known as Guernsey's German whore. Jody woke up in the middle of the night covered in sweat. He stumbled out of bed and poured himself a shot of whiskey with trembling hands, and then another. What in the hell was the matter with him? Why was he dreaming about being a Nazi, 
about some long-dead woman whose name he'd read on a luggage tag. Hell, he'd never even been out of California, let alone overseas. He looked around for his cats, but not a one of them was in sight. Where are you rotten felines hiding? The trunk was on the hall table, silent and inscrutable. Jody glanced at it, and then did a double-take like a character in a comedy show. The lid was wide open, but he was sure he'd left it closed. His feet made the decision to walk toward it without the consent of his nerves. All of a sudden, that damn calliope music began to play, like at a circus or a carnival. Jody stumbled backward and cried out in the darkened hallway. He suddenly remembered exactly when he'd last heard that music. It had been a long time ago, a summer night underneath the pier at Santa Monica. The gritty, damp sand was rough beneath their skin. The cold, salty water misted their faces and hair. The woman, not the one with the curtain of dark hair, not Eileen Livingstone or Livingstone or whatever the hell her name was, but his dancing partner, the one with wheat-colored curls and a sweet, crooked smile. But just like Eileen Livingstone and her Nazi, she had told him to stop, please stop. But the desire had risen up in him, an animal thing, and he couldn't stop now. Wouldn't stop. Only Jody hadn't been as lucky as the German. The girl with the wheat-colored curls hadn't been willing to risk her reputation for his sake, even if it wasn't a matter of life and death. In fact, on that freezing sand with the calliope music swirling through the air, she told Jody she was going to first tell her father and then the police. He couldn't let that happen, could he? She should have kept her mouth shut like that Guernsey girl. But just like a good lock on a sturdy piece of luggage, they didn't make women like that anymore. He'd had to make sure this one stayed silent. It had been easy enough to choke the words right out of her, with just a little pressure to the sides of her neck. What was one more missing girl in a city full of missing girls? Hell, a whole world full of missing girls. Just like Eileen Livingstone, with nothing left behind but a forgotten suitcase in a cobweb-covered basement. Jody heard a low, animal growling. He wasn't sure if it had come from him or the missing cats. The paper-thin white dress glowed in the dim hallway like a patch of sickly moonlight. His hands were even more defiant against his nerves than his feet had been, because even though it was the last thing in the world he wanted to touch, he reached for the suitcase and picked up the dress. He held it by the shoulders and shook loose the careful folds of time. The dress fell full length to the floor, and Jody saw a red stain just below the waist, spreading outward like an angry crimson sunrise. He tried to scream, but no sound came out. All of a sudden his throat closed up as if cold, slender hands were squeezing it tight, choking the screams right out of him with a little pressure to the sides of his neck. They say he was in here for like two days or something before anyone finally found him. The well-dressed real estate lady in high-heeled shoes 
gave her young assistant a disgusted look and then sighed. <sighs> Just what this building needs. One more mess to clean up. Time to tell the management to stop being cheap and hire a real cleaning crew. They were on their way out of the apartment when the trunk on the hall table caught the woman's eye. She opened the lid. All that was inside was a tissue-thin wedding dress carefully folded inside yellowing sheets of newspaper. I wonder why that old guy wanted something like this, she asked. He must have thought it was worth something, her assistant said. Maybe he was being sentimental, although he didn't strike me as the sentimental type. Might as well leave it for the cleanup crew. The key was already in the lock when the woman hesitated. She went back to the trunk and unfolded the wedding dress so it fell full length to the floor. It was in excellent condition for its age, crisp and white without a single spot or blemish. She was friendly with a woman who owned a little shop on Ivar that specialized in vintage clothing. Maybe it was something that would interest her. She folded the dress back into the trunk, closed the lid, and tucked it under her arm. After all, she told herself, one man's junk is another man's treasure, and there might be someone out there just waiting to rediscover this little piece of history. That was B.E. Scully's Age Will Be Responsible, as read to us by Jeff Lane. Jeff Lane lives in New Hampshire with his wife and two children. He's the author of the novels This Paper World and One Way. He wrote the novella Crush Depth and has published a number of short stories. He podcasts his fiction at jefflaneaudiobooks.com. That's on iTunes and Podiobooks. He says that when he's not allowing his dreams to flow from his fingers, he dabbles in the peanut butter and chocolate combination of call center operations and training management. You can find more about him, his books, ebooks, podcasts, and upcoming film projects at jefflaneonline.com. Of course, both links will be in the show notes. Jeff would like you to remember that if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it probably uh, a cybernetically enhanced killing machine just waiting for the signal to go to work. And that will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Take care as you leave this distant cabin, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.